You're listening to the Pop Tart Podcast. Girl down. You already know. I could literally cry right now at the thought that my music accompanied you on that profound experience. For people who just want to get lost in the hook on the dance floor, they can do that. But if you want to look deeper, the layers are there. And then they called about doing the movie with Tiffany. And we both kind of were in the same spirit. We were both like, you know what? What is this going to kill the acting career we don't have? Like, who cares? Hello. 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 And welcome to Pop-Tarts. I'm Emily Rems. I'm Callie Watts. We're both editors of Bust Magazine in New York City. We love talking to each other about pop culture. We love talking to you about pop culture. And today is a big day for both Callie and I because we are both huge pop music fangirls. And today's guest is an undisputed master of the medium. Debbie Gibson is a singing, dancing, songwriting, producing, composing musical prodigy who has been serenading the world for 35 years, ever since her self-penned hit, Only In My Dreams, arrived on the Billboard charts when she was just 16 in the summer of 1987. Since then, she has sold more than 16 million albums, released 10 studio albums, toured all over the world, and starred in 17 musicals. Her first album of new songs in 20 years, The Body Remembers, came out this past summer on her own label, Stargirl Records. It's so surprising and so satisfying. I cannot wait to talk to her all about it. Welcome, Debbie Gibson, to Pop-Tarts. Yay! Thank you. Thank you so much. So great to be here. We are excited. I would like to dive in by starting at the very beginning. Um... By the time that you were 17 in 1988, you had already entered the Guinness Book of World Records for being the youngest person ever to produce, write, and perform a number one song on the Billboard charts. This is a distinction that you achieved with your ballad Foolish Beat, a classique in my opinion, (laughs) and 34 years later, you are still the youngest woman to ever do that. Tell us about growing up in Long Island, New York. Um, oh, and what boy. led you not only to music, but um, but also to like the real technical proficiency that you had in every element of music making at an age when most of us are just trying to pass chemistry? <laughs> so growing up in Long Island was amazing and especially amazing for the arts. Like there was always a talent show, a church production, a temple production. I was like, I can pretend I'm Jewish to audition to play baby June if necessary. (laughs) Um, I just went where the roles were. But yeah, really, it was a great artistic community. And, um, you know, I always wrote songs and I was always obsessed with the radio and pop music like you girls. And, you know, I was doing like TV commercials and voiceovers and I went into this voiceover studio and... Afterwards, I came home and I said to my mom, you know, if I knew what those buttons did and those faders do, I feel like I could get the music that's in my head to come out of those speakers. And she was like, you know, she took that in, but I was like 11 at the time. And so for my confirmation, instead of getting jewelry like my sisters, I said, I want a Casio synthesizer because my bestie Iris had one. It was like the $199, which by the way, back then, I mean, for like a confirmation gift, a lot of money Um, in our family anyway. So, but they, my parents got me that synthesizer. Then I asked to go to the Sam Ash music show that was at like some little motel hotel, you know, like a Holiday Inn Express or something in on Long Island where you go from room to room and you sample the gear and I really wanted a drum machine and in particular <laughs> this one little thing that had a pad on it that was like do 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 you know that sound very big in the 80s and so anyway I got these like patty drum machines and I had everything lined up on the ironing board I collected all of my sister's little Panasonic like red tape recorders 
And I line them up on the ironing board with the synthesizer, with the drum machine. And I was trying to multi-track record. Like I was like playing something into one, playing it back while I was playing both things into the next. And by the end you heard, and like (laughs) some little faint arrangement behind it. So my mom went, this is ridiculous. We have to get this girl set up. So and she probably said it exactly like I just said it right then because she was just like, okay. So she called an uncle who had um, a business and she drove three hours and secured a $10,000 loan to help me build a studio in the garage. Was your mom a creative oh person? Like, my was- mom was like a, a life creative person. She was a resourceful person. So she loved music and she loved like helping other people facilitate their vision, whatever it may be. And, um, she just knew, she knew, she knew that I was serious and committed to music always. And, you know, she would have to like pry me away from the piano as opposed to make me practice. So she knew. And, um, and this uncle gave her the loan gave us the loan. And then she was like, I don't know how to like figure out what to get you. And then like my voice teacher knew an engineer who knew like, and, and people just kind of like suggested equipment and helped me put it together. And they taught me a little bit. And then most I just learned on my own. I had like a little like gearheads who are watching are going to love this. I had a Lynn rack mount sequencer and a DX seven keyboard and a drum machine and and I was like learning how to program. I had a little Tascam four track, which eventually grew to a 12 track. And I was like multi-track recording all my songs in the, um, in the garage and I wrote and so produced much. about a hundred demos before uh, we made our way to Atlantic and they signed me to do one. Amazing. We're so used to like hearing about bedroom producers now, like kids with like their Macs in their bedroom, but like people need to realize what it was like in the eighties. It's just like you, like you walked so the rest of us could run. That's how I feel. I love that. No, it is. It's like, so I don't know why this weird analogy just popped, but it's like somebody now saying I'm building a spaceship in my room. I mean, it was so out there at the time. It like, I didn't know another kid in my town, like, I didn't know another kid who, who had a studio in their house. Um, so yeah, it was, and I especially didn't know any girls who were doing anything like this. So I felt like a bit of a freak, uh, you know, and it was like a novelty, like friends would come over and I would like sample them and we'd make rap songs and things so they could understand like how things worked and, it was really fun. We, one, one I'm particularly fond of was called Rapping on a Snowy Day, which is exactly what it sounded like. We were all like snowed in. <laughs> like we built an igloo in the backyard and then did a rap song. Is there any way you remember any bit of rapping on a snowy day? Can we hear any of it? You know, I don't really, the thing I remember about it was like everybody's names, like Mama Mike, Mike. But I remember my friend Iris, the one who had the Casio keyboard before me, she and I did, hey, everybody, take a look at me. I'm Riri, and that's Debris. I'm here to rock your neighborhood. And I can't even remember anything more than that. But we did, we, we, we were Riri Debris because I was Debrita in Spanish because there was already a Deborah. So, Oh, my God, amazing. We were Debris. And we're still friends. I just saw her two weeks ago. Yes, yes, from the seventh grade. Yeah. I'm still best friends with my best friend from the seventh grade, too. It's it's a special thing to have. It is. It is. But yeah, we kind of made fun of each other in the Rapping on a Snowy Day song. Like one of our guy friends who liked much younger girls, which at the time was probably two years younger. And, you know, all those kinds, like, we were just, like, kind of ribbing each other in that song. But they were just fascinated by the fact that we could sample their name and make it repeat. And, yeah. I love it. <laughs> it's a good party trick. Good party trick. When I was thinking about talking to you, Callie and I were commiserating. We are both the exact age that your label was trying to market you to when you first came out. I was remembering being a 13-year-old girl at Fat Camp 
I was laying on towels with my friends outside of our fat camp bunk in 1988. We were listening to my cassette of your first album, Out of the Blue. We had like a pastel peach boombox, and we were debating about whether we should be Debbie Gibson fans or Tiffany fans. And it sounds stupid now to even say it, but your album and Tiffany's album first they both came out in 1987. They were both aimed squarely at my exact age demographic. And right away, it felt like the marketing and the hype around those two albums communicated to us, the fans, that there was only room for one of you at the top. Right. We couldn't just have and enjoy both of you. We had to choose, not because there was any specific beef between two of you, the two of you or anything, but just because the industry was so fucking sexist and geared towards men that the girls of America were expected to demonstrably decide which one of the two of you we wanted so they could just get rid of the other one. By the way, that was like the best way I've ever heard it put. Like seriously, that was such an astute observation as to why that was being done. Yeah. They were wanting us to tear each other down and people, they wanted us in competition. They wanted to believe there was this rivalry and I used to say this and I used to be like, but there's like this chart with a hundred songs on it every week. Like there's room for all of us. And, and 99 of them were from dudes. Yeah. <laughs> right. True. And, and older people. See, at the time I was like, well, mm-hmm. Madonna and Whitney Houston are the same age and nobody's asking them to compete. Like, I don't get it. Right. And to me, apart from the fact that Tiffany and I were teens and I loved her music, by the way, like me and my younger sister, Denise had a Walkman with the split uh, headphones and every flight we took off on, we played, I think we're alone now. Cause the as you were taxiing was like epic. It was epic. Um, I loved Tiffany. I loved her voice. I thought her voice was so cool and rock and roll. And I had a complete opposite voice and our songs were very different. Like could have been was very different than lost in your eyes. Even if you compare ballads, um, Probably the Bangles Eternal Flame was more similar to my style, but nobody was comparing that. So like, yeah, it always made me scratch my head and go, other than the fact that we are a year apart, like there's really no similarities. Correct. And I really felt like we should have more than one. Like we should have as many as we want. And we, myself and everyone else that I knew who was into that kind of music, we We all had both of your tapes. We had no problem liking both of you, but it seemed like the media that was coming out towards us about you was trying to make us choose when none of us wanted to. I love that. I mean, I hate that about the media, but I love it. You didn't want to, but yeah, she and I were kind of always like, and still are like cousins, you know, like we, we have like this family connection, this soul connection. And yet we're different and we acknowledge our differences, but we have such a shared experience. So it's really, really cool. It's a very cool relationship. You know, there's something else about that time that really troubled me now as an adult looking back on your emergence as a pop star. And I'm not sure if you'll agree with my assessment of this or not, which is why I'm asking. <laughs> but as a songwriter, you alone wrote every single one of your songs that made the top 20 of the Billboard Hot 100. We're talking about songs like Only In My Dreams, Lost In Your Eyes, Electric Youth. These are enormous monster hits. In 1989, you were, as I believe you were only 19, you and Bruce Springsteen were both recognized by ASCAP as, as songwriters of the year. But I in my opinion, I feel like you were never afforded the same kind of respect in the industry that people like Bruce Springsteen have enjoyed. I'm not trying to say that he doesn't deserve respect. I'm saying that you deserve the same amount because both of you, like, because you were a young woman when you rose to fame and because the music you made was primarily enjoyed by young women like me, like, I just don't think that it was measured in the way in the same way or in the way that it should have been. I, I've always felt uh, like... Oh, that's, that's so sweet. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. I, I feel that if in the mid-80s, which is what we're talking about, if a 16-year-old boy had emerged from a studio in his parents' garage, writing, performing, recording, producing multiple big hits, like not a one-hit wonder, but doing it again and again, 
the world would have absolutely laid down on his feet. But instead, that exact same year that you were named Songwriter of the Year alongside Bruce Springsteen, I remember Mojo Nixon released that song, Debbie Gibson is Pregnant with My Two-Headed Love Child, which is like, oh. fine, whatever. But I just felt that there was a general air of dismissiveness at that time. Yeah, so I was just about to use that word. I was very dismissed and like this is always a hard conversation for me to have because I don't want it to seem like I'm coming from a place of ego like yes, I should have been this and should because my life has turned out just fine. But there was definitely a very like so the ASCAP Songwriter of the Year award was based solely on the fact that my music performed. It performed mm-hmm. in sales and it performed at radio. And so the political machine that deems this person cool and that person not and it had no say-so in that award. So it was a very pure award. So it's very special to me. Um, I was never nominated for a Grammy. Um, I was, you know, like, and that was later on the Grammy, the Grammys started considering younger artists as part of the landscape. But I think they just really thought we were all going to go away. Mm-hmm. And I do think they thought like, even though I was doing it again and again, it seemed like an accident to people or something. Um, and I do think that if an older male crafted those songs for a young girl and had all those hits, he would have been deemed a genius. Yep. Wow. That man really hit pop bullseyes with those songs, right? Like that definitely exactly. would have happened. So I don't know what that was about. Like, And I will tell you, like, Rob Sheffield coming out and writing me a love letter in Rolling Stone last year about The Body Remembers made up for all of that. It just made up for all of that. I was like, ah, like, I, I, it was so much fun because I didn't, this last year has been so much fun because I haven't been craving that validation. Like, I'm 35 years in my career. I'm kind of over it. So when it, when that validation came my way from a lot of really, people that I respect greatly and hearing you girls talking about it now, it's like, wow, that feels really good. I appreciate it now, maybe even more than I would have then. Um, so yeah, it's interesting because I have now experienced the the dawning of the Taylor Swift era and all of, you know, mm-hmm. the era of the young girl and Olivia Rodrigo. And I'm not sitting around bitter that I didn't get that kind of respect or those accolades or those awards. I'm just happy finally that these women are, and young women are getting that respect. Yes. Right. They are getting time. that respect. And also those of us who are 13 listening to your music on boom boxes, laying on the grass in front of their cabins at fat camp are now all making media. And now we're the ones who get to say That's- who gets, who gets the respect that they deserve and who doesn't. I love that. <laughs> and you, every time you say fat camp, my heart just like, you know, you know, like I think about like, and I know you say it like looking back with a perspective and with humor, but like I could literally cry right now at the thought that my music accompanied you on that profound experience and maybe held your hand and maybe made you feel better. And maybe because mm-hmm. I wasn't like, I wasn't like the picture perfect beauty queen girl either, like the girl that... We see these girls now and I think, dear Lord, I'm so glad I'm not a teenager now. There's so much to live up to. And, and if you're not aesthetically perfect, it's this, you know, it's just psychologically so traumatizing. And I always Mm -hmm. did feel like in a way, like I said earlier, like I felt like a little bit of a freak and a misfit because I was in my studio making music while kids were at parties. And my goal wasn't to be popular. Like I, and I didn't fit into that crowd at all. And so I love that, like, my music connected to you and your friends at that camp. That's really it did. And your so music amazing to me. You're, it's amazing to me that it's amazing to you, honestly. <laughs> I wish I could tell her. I wish I could let her know that this moment was happening now. Uh, but, <laughs> uh, you know, like, no less meaningful is the music that you're making now. That You mentioned your new album, The Body Remembers, your first album of new material in 20 years. Um, it's tremendous. And your fans you. are getting to hear just this really beautifully curated, very, it feels very carefully and expertly executed 15 tracks of these really super current sounding pop songs that Thank are performed you. by a, a Debbie Gibson who is still the Debbie Gibson that we know and love, but who is just at the very pinnacle of her slash your powers. There's a lot 
to love about the collection. I, <laughs> I really Thank love you. the new version of Lost in Your Eyes that you did with Joey McIntyre. It was like, ooh, so satisfying. Something else that really struck me about the album while I was enjoying it was that I didn't, I guess I didn't really realize how much your squeaky clean image as almost like a 1980s version of Sandra D was impacting my experience of you until I got to hear you now as this much more uncensored grown up lady with a whole lot more life experience and sexuality and grit who is starting a new chapter in her life as a single woman again at 50. I really heard this new version of you for me coming through in songs like Strings and in the final track, Me Not Loving You. Tell, tell me about how it feels to be reemerging in this new way after 20 years. I love everything you just said. I mean, like grit's one of my favorite words. Um, and I always, you know, it's funny, I had grit as a teen and yet I think I worked really hard to cover that up because like the pristine image, the one, yes, that pristine thing, it was like, I, I leaned into that a lot and that became almost a caricature of myself in a way. And so, yes, all the grit that you hear, like <clears throat> even my speaking voice today is like husky. It's like, I don't wake up every day in this pristine place. I just don't. I'm kind of messy. I'm mess literally messy. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's interesting to not, again, because I am so, it's, I, I remember Taylor Swift talking about this in her documentary, how when you grow up young and in the spotlight, you gain this like unnatural insight into yourself, the self-awareness that you then have to try to like distance yourself from so you don't get caught up in like, well, people expect this from me. They want me to be like this. They want me to sing like this. And so you can really come from your true authentic place, you know? So like me not loving, I mean, there's, I recorded all my vocals at home and there are times where I'm just like slam, like I'm kind of a rocker at heart. So I'm like distorting and slamming the meters. But if the emotion of that performance is where I want it to be, I'm not going back and recording the pristine, like, you know, em emulating that take version of it. I never do that. And so that's, I think what you heard on the album, which I really appreciate um, and I do, you know, I spend a lot of time with my own thoughts. I'm kind of a loner in a weird way. Like I'm not a super social butterfly. I'm more introspective and I have lived a lot of life and, and overcome a lot of things and, and have perspectives on a lot of things. And the thing with this album and the thing that I've always done, I don't think I try to do it consciously, but I do it is I love a great hooky pop song. I love a great hooky dance song. But as the years have gone on, I do want to tell a more layered story and create a more visceral picture. And so for people who just want to get lost in the hook on the dance floor, they can do that. But if you want to look deeper, the layers are there. You know, so that's kind of what this album feels like to me. And the title, you know, that word, I, I'm sure you guys have heard it by now, nostalgic, which I love. I think it reflects what feels good about nostalgia, but also what feels powerful about living in a modern time and place and not thinking everything great was done yesterday. Right. So yes, I try to combine exactly. those elements. We, we've mentioned so far that this is your first album release of new work in 20 years, but in that time, you've been cultivating a very diverse acting career. You've done a ton of Broadway musicals, including Les Mis, Grease, Funny Girl, Chicago. We talked about you doing Cabaret. I loved, because of my personal preferences, I loved that you did a few really weird sci-fi monster movies because that is like totally my bag, including Mega Shark versus Giant Octopus. And then when you did Mega Python versus Gatoroid, you were in that movie with Tiffany in 2011 and it was everything. Um, Thank you. And then and on you know, TV. Wait, wait. Can I just talk about those movies a second? Because please I, do. I remember the day, my, and this is where I've always been just like a little to the quirkier side of what people may have thought I was. My agent, David Shapira, who I love, God love him, he called and he was like, you know, I was wanting to get into TV and film. And I had done like a little thing here or a little thing there, but it was more stunt casty. And you kind of take the opportunity that comes. And people weren't banging my doors down to act. 
And he's like, I have this really kind of crazy offer for you. He was representing Lorenzo Lamas at the time. He goes, they called for Lorenzo and I pitched them you and they love it. And they want you to play this like scientist who drives a submarine. And I was like, what? (laughs) And there's a giant shark and he eats the Golden Gate Bridge. And I was like, oh my God. And they're paying like next to nothing. But you know what? Nobody's going to see it really, except like the sci-fi diehards. It'll be on the sci-fi network and you on the, on the channel and you'll get to get your feet wet, pardon the pun, you know, uh, get your feet wet and, you know, see how you like this world and whatever, whatever. So I go to do it and it was a lot of fun. And the playing the role itself was kind of weirdly more grounded than I expected it to be. Like it was a nice little story. And, um, and then the trailer comes out and he calls, he goes, um, Deb, you're going to kill me, but the trailer has a half a million hits already. So the little movie I told you nobody was going <laughs> to see, not so much. But then it led to getting to know the folks at Asylum and they're super cool. And then they called about doing the movie at Tiffany. And Tiffany and I have always talked about collaborating on something. And we both kind of were in the same spirit. We were both like, you know what, what is this going to kill the acting career we don't have? Like, who cares? Let's go, let's go have some fun, have a big Dynasty-esque food fight, slap each other, fight off some giant critters, like save the planet in hot dresses. And we just had such a giggle. And I loved it. I loved it. And then I went and did all of those, like the chiller convention and all the, and met all these sci-fi and I loved it. I love that it's just got such a cult following. That whole community is super cool and doesn't take itself too seriously. And neither do I really. Like, I take the details of my music seriously as I'm working on it, but I don't take myself seriously. You know, it's like, it, it's just, life's meant to be fun. And I was like, I was like in the mood to say yes. I so I was it. saying a bu- bunch of yes. <laughs> I love that you did. If I like had a different other life to live where I could be in movies, I would want to be in Mega Python versus Gatoroid too. Like absolutely. <laughs> Especially because you became so famous when you were so young. I feel like you've had more than your fair share of truly frightening experiences with stalkers. Um, for people who don't know, there was a gentleman named Robert Bardo who was convicted of murdering actress Rebecca Schaefer in 1989. And during the course of that investigation, they found that his house, a wall of his house was covered in pictures of you when you were still a teenager. Mm -hmm. In in 1998, a man named Michael Faulkner, who had been sending you threatening letters and emails and faxes, was arrested outside of the Broadway theater where you were starring in Beauty and the Beast. He was actually arrested for having a fax machine way beyond when fax machines were in. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. (laughs) I'm just diffusing the the drama with humor. Go on, go on, go on. Yeah, no, but I mean, a a fax machine at that time is a red flag, regardless of what you're doing with it. In 2008, you had to file for a restraining order against a taxi driver who had been stalking you for six years. How does a person with a career as long and as high profile as yours create a normal life with a reasonable amount of personal freedom when you have so many security concerns? How do you make that happen? Um, You know, I mean, it was definitely like I'm very aware even now, like where I post something, how I, you know, like. I'm probably leaving someplace before I post where I am or nothing too close to home or, 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 but I mean, you know, being a young girl, like in that glass tower, like again, to use that word that, that with that pristine image is like the biggest target for stalkers. It just is. And when I think about my mom, you know, my mom recently passed and I think about how much, my mom protected me and how well she protected me. That was really her worst nightmare more than mine. I was a kid. I didn't really understand the full gravity of it. Um, I knew that we put certain measures into protecting me. um, And I didn't overthink it. Honestly, Uh, it didn't feel like it got deep into my psyche. There were things that scarred me far more than that. Weirdly. Um, but when I think about my mother and her child being threatened and the fact that she had four children and at one point they were all made, each made the target. Cause it was like, well, if we can't get her, we'll get this one. Or we're And, you know, I felt really awful because none of my sisters, my family didn't sign on for that. 
so that was probably the most awful part about it for me. Um, when I think about it now, I go, holy crap. But, uh, you know, I, I think I just chalked it up to, oh, it comes with the turf back then. And I do think over the years, like, weirdly, you know, you might think it's every pop performer's dream to be up here the whole time, your entire life. I kind of wanted to, like, disappear into a national tour of a theater show where, where it wasn't just about me. I was part of a group. I was part of a cast. I was part of, like, the show was the star of the show more than it being my thing. And, and so I don't think my nervous system ever liked me being so mega famous that those things happened to me um, or that I was that target. So I think I instinctually created a life for myself that was manageable for me. And like at this point, I have this unbelievable community of supporters, fans who respect my time, my space, my, they, they get that I give a lot to them when it's time to give a lot to them. And I, and, and they don't demand it of me in any weird ways outside of that. Like they're just respectful. And I feel like I have a more of a peer relationship with them. I'm not up here and they're not down here clamoring for me. And so <clears throat> I just think like by the nature of who I am and how I'm comfortable living my life that has been created for me. I understand. I wanted to return for a moment. You had mentioned that your mom passed away recently and I'm, I just really wanted to give you my condolences for a moment and tell you, Thank you. How, how sorry I am for your loss. That's really, really hard. Thank you. Do you guys have both of your parents or... Yes, we do. God bless. Enjoy them. Um, and, you know, my mom and I, man, I just think about it. It's like we were on this entwined mission and she was such a badass pioneer for all women, women executives and and momagers. And, uh, you know, I just I've been celebrating her so much in particular this last year. And I don't know if it was a premonition or if it's just perspective and the fact that <clears throat> that this new chapter has been happening. And I am so hyper aware that this chapter wouldn't be happening without that chapter that she was so instrumental in. And um, yeah, so, you know, I'm in the process of day-to-day -day grieving process, but I'm not... Mm. I'm not in it to the point that I'm debilitated there. Yesterday I was sleeping and crying more than today. Today I, there's a lot of pockets of joy and I'm celebrating all the things that she has allowed me to do in this lifetime. I mean, nobody else but a mother would have taken all of those risks and been as bold as she was to get me in all the doors she helped get me in. And, <clears throat> and, not any mother could have done what she did either because she had such intelligence and, and such a pair of cojones <laughs> that like, I don't know where she got it from. Um, and she had such a vision and so, so much relentlessness. Like today on social media, Scott Shannon said like Diane Gibson was so relentless. She was so tough. She drove me so crazy, but she got my record played on Z100. Let me tell you. And so did Atlantic Records. But, you know, you can get lost in a shuffle at a label. You need the people advocating for you. You need the manager. You need your team. And it's so it's, you know, we've heard a lot of different stories from a lot of different women who became famous young. And um, the parents aren't always the advocates that they should be in those situations. And so it's really beautiful to hear um, someone like you talk about situations where it actually like the parent is doing what the parent is meant to do in that situation and what you would hope that the parent would right. do in that situation. A thousand percent. And, you know, she was very respectful and yet she, of other people and yet she was always going to put me first. You know what I mean? Like she wasn't, she, she used to be like, you know what? I don't, I don't care about my reputation as much as I care about your well-being and your music being heard. And, and so, you know, I joke that I still do some damage control with my manager, Heather and Alex. Sometimes I'd be like, Oh, Diane must've burned that bridge 30 years ago. And I laugh about it. Cause I go, 
you know what? If she burned a bridge 30 years ago, like, first of all, I have options of 100 bridges to cross, so I really don't care. And I know why she did it, and I know where it came from. It's like she, you know, she was bound to offend a person or two along the way because you don't have a 16, 17, 18-year-old girl client who's also your daughter with male execs wanting that client on their arm at parties and th- without offending someone or having to kind of throw your body in front of somebody. And she wasn't afraid to do that. And because of it, I really was protected uh, in a way that it's remarkable when I look back on it. And, and she didn't just do that for me. She did it for my three sisters and in, 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 in all in different ways in whatever it was that they needed. Um, she was always in four places at once. She could tell you what any one of us were thinking or feeling on any given day. She was like a super, superwoman mom, you know, take away the momager part. She was an unbelievable mom. And she wasn't the mom that was like in the sandbox with us. She was kind of like the, she was the role model for what we all became, which was, which is like independent business women. My sisters are all moms. Um, you know, and they, they all have their own style and each of us kind of have a little piece of my mom's style. I love it. I love it too. All right. Now I have a question. I need to know the answer to Debbie Gibson. Are you a feminist? (laughs) Oh my goodness. Um, You know, I guess you could say I'm a feminist, not to the point of like burning bras in the backyard or, I mean, I, you know, I, I hear different, what would your definition of a feminist be? I'll gladly give it to you. My definition of a feminist is someone who believes that men and women should have equal rights and opportunities in this society and that this society is not yet offering equal rights and opportunities to both men and women. So we should try to work towards a future in which that is true. I mean, a thousand percent that I absolutely believe in. Um, And the reason I asked is because I do think that there is a part of feminism that's like. Tell me if I'm wrong on this, okay? But, like, I feel like I live what it means to be a feminist. I feel like I live female empowerment. I feel like I walk my walk. So I don't really get immersed in, like, again, a definition. But would you say in any way to be feminist is to, like, disown any of your sexuality or to... Absolutely because not. No, I know, would not. So what's really interesting, and I said this at my mom's service, okay, my three sisters and I were lined up in that front row and my mom's beautiful picture um, smiling down on us. And I got up to speak and I said, my mom taught us. And I think this is to me a lot of what it means to be a feminist too. She, she taught us to enter the room with our power, our intelligence, our skills, our vulnerability, and to own being a woman, being sexual, but to not, but to, but to not have that be our calling card per se. And so that's like one of the greatest gifts she left me because if you've ever seen my mom, what a striking, gorgeous, sexy, powerful, statuesque woman. But that wasn't what she used to get what she got. Um, And so in that regard, yes, I mean, a thousand percent. And my team, and I love this because I can say this with such authenticity and uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't know, but um, my team is primarily female, but it's not because... I sought out only females. In general, there were, let's say, five distribution companies and record labels with their hats in the ring. The best person for the job happened to be female. And do I love that fact in addition to the fact that that's true? Yes, I do. 
but I couldn't have just said, I'm going to hire you because you're, you're going to be my distribution partner because yeah, shout out to Missy because you're female. It's you're the best person for the job. And then, and maybe there could be something in a female intuition and connection that also makes it a powerful partnership. My manager is female. Um, my attorney is female, head of my PR company is female. I could go on and on, but they're all just badass women who get it. They get it. And they were the most deserving of being in these roles. And they work so tireless for, tirelessly for me. And I feel like there's a connection. It's like when you were talking about camp and the music, there is a connection, uh, I think that's there, you know, like just they get something about me as an artist, maybe because they were there also in that place and time. And so it's also like women of a certain generation on my team. Um, I work with younger people in on the musical front a lot. Like I have a collaborator. I'm veering off the topic and I can go back to, to your initial topic in a minute. But I tend to enlist the help of younger people. Um, in the making of the music to get that modern infusion. And because a lot of younger people, collaborators are still, they still have that wide eyed view of the world, which I have every time I step into the studio, I'm like, Oh my God, we're making music. Like, and people are going to hear it maybe like, that's so crazy. Um, so yes, but I do love like the wisdom and the experience of our primarily female team. Um, and yes, I mean, so yes, I guess I would say yes. Of course I would say All yes. Right. This is my last question, and it is the last question that we ask all of our guests on Pop-Tarts, and it is a pop cultural question. The question is, whatcha watching? And when I say whatcha watching, I want to know about movies and books and music and television and music videos and podcasts, anything that you are consuming pop culturally, we want to know what it is because it is probably very, 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 very cool. Debbie Gibson, what you watching? Okay. So last night I finally watched uh, the Ricardos movie being the Ricardos, which was magnificent. Um, I just finished, I'm very late to this party, but just finished binge watching Hung, which was so much fun. It was so much fun. I do. So the pandemic really, really taught me the joy of binge watching because again, I'm like kind of a hibernational critter. And so you do feel like, oh, my friends are waiting for me upstairs in my TV. Um, <laughs> and I was always a big fan of TV. So yes, I did just binge watch Hung. Um, reading, oh my God, it's, I have to look this up really quick, but you can look it up or you can look it up for me. Rachel Hollis, girl, wash, I keep mixing up. It's girls, girl, wash your hands or girl, wash your face. But it's a very, it's very much like a self, I don't say help, self-help, but like very like intelligent, inspirational, motivational. I was reading it going, did I write this book? Like just very relatable very relatable. Um, before that, I read Rob Sheffield's Love is a Mixtape, which is unbelievable. I can't believe it took me so long to read that. Unbelievable. Um, oh my gosh. I'm like music. I'm all over the place. So I literally like have to go look in a mix to tell you, I mean, I'm all over the place. I love everything from Justin Bieber to The Weeknd to Ed Sheeran to like, I'll put Rosemary Clooney on for a certain mood. I will put um, Carrie Underwood on if I'm in a certain mood. Um, I'm looking at more. <clears throat> I mean, so I, I, I really am all over the place with music and I make mixes. So I don't have anything like too exciting to tell you on that front, to be honest. I'm just scrolling. <laughs> yeah, that's what I got for you on that. That sounded great. I appreciate your answer. There was a lot in there. <laughs> Thank you, girls. Thank you again so much for coming on our show. We appreciate you so much. This was such a big day for us, and it was so much fun talking to you. So much fun talking to you both, too. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you again so much. We're going to take the briefest of breaks. Then I'm going to come back, and I'm going to ask Callie, and Callie is going to ask me, what you watching? 
before we get back to the show, I want to tell you about our new sponsor, Wolfie Vibes Publicity. If you're working on a new project and find yourself in need of a kick-ass publicist who communicates well and works tirelessly to get you the coverage you're after, consider going to Wolfie Vibes Publicity. Wolfie Vibes Publicity is a female-owned and operated boutique PR firm that will get you where you need to be, and you'll even have fun in the process. Get in touch via WolfieVibesPublicity.com for details and quotes, and tell them that Pop-Tart sent you. Essentially, I started it because every female comedian I know was amazing and hardworking and hilarious, and I knew would make great podcasts, and every male comedian I know already had a podcast and was doing their own thing. <laughs> Hi, I'm Kate Moldenhauer, the founder of More Banana Podcasts, a comedy podcast network entirely produced, hosted, and led by women. We have shows about politics. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Let's Get Civical. When the Supreme Court puts stuff on their calendar, they use the word docket. So their Google calendar is a docket. Is a docket. So technically, I have a docket. You have a docket. We all have docket. We dockets. all have a docket. Sex. Welcome to my vagina. I'm Jesse Karen. This is Rebecca Frank. What were ancient Greek dildos made of, Jesse? They were made of padded leather and, yep, anointed with olive oil. Yep. <laughs> Scams. I'm Caitlin I'm Rodney. Smith. And, <laughs> and we, we love scams. scams. She tells them she's a German-Russian heiress, and she seems like she has a lot of money, and people buy it. That's yeah. basically what's happening. So as soon as she got a loan, she would cash it as much as she could out before anybody caught on. It's amazing. so smart. I mean, <laughs> so like smart. To, I mean, it's terrible, but like to take that money out immediately. Because women are actually pretty versatile and funny. More Banana is a network of women's voices, unfiltered and uninterrupted. Find us everywhere you get your podcasts and learn about our growing roster of shows at morebanana.com. Hey, Pop-Tart listeners. Have you been trying to record your own podcast, but you keep getting bogged down by technical problems? Luscious Logan can take the raw recordings of your show, edit and produce them to give them that rich, full-body sound that you hear right now. If you have a deep need to express yourself and sound good in the process, reach Luscious Logan. LusciousLogan13 at gmail.com. That's LusciousLogan13 at gmail.com. If you want to have that luscious sound... We're back. Hello. Callie, we talked to Debbie Gibson. Can you believe that shit? Dude, talk about 90s icon. Throwback. Electric fucking youth. Amazing. Amazing. Now, yeah, I need to know. I got to know. I want to know. I simply have got to know. Callie Watts, what you watching? Wow. You know the first thing I'm going to bring up because I made you watch it with me. I know what it's going to be, Callie. <laughs> Fucking dead ant. It's on Amazon. And I am now obsessed with it. And I've probably watched it like six times. Um, I made you watch it. I made Hensel watch it. I made Erica and Janet, old bus family, watch it. it basically, if you encounter me, you're watching dead ant. And so I found it on Amazon. And when I started it, I was like, the first scene is absolutely ridiculous and um, full nudity. And I was like, this is either going to be the best, worst movie or just the worst movie. <laughs> and it made it to best, worst. Um, <laughs> the cast is absolutely insane. It's got Sean Austin, you know, um, Goonies, Hobbit fame, Tom Arnold, um, Jake uh, Busey, the brother of Busey, and Sydney Sweeney. No, no, no. He's the, he's the son of Busey. Right. Son of Busey. And um, it's about a ba- like a metal band that gets a chance to get back together. They had like one hit wonder back in the day. And they think they're on their way to Coachella, but it's really no Coachella. <laughs> and um, they take some peyote and... Um, they just don't do it 
the way that the uh, shaman says, and then they get attacked by giant ants. <laughs> <laughs> what were your thoughts on the movie, Emily? I was skeptical, but uh, it was a pleasant surprise. It actually had like a lovely um, sort of story arc with lots of, you know, it it was made by and for people who love B horror movies. Yes, and, um, <laughs> and they, I was surprised that there was a budget. They really made giant ants crawl all over the place, and I thought that was great. But then they would also mix it up with really shitty effects just for that vibe, which I love. <laughs> like the green yeah. screen. I found it entertaining. I loved it. Um, I My favorite part, I think, was like there was this little CGI ant who like, crawled up by the ground and was like, you have no respect for yourself or others, and that <laughs> will be your downfall. <laughs> or like that will be your demise. It was so good. And then the ants just attacked that dude. I can't remember if I've talked about this other show yet or not. Peacemaker on HBO? No, I don't think you have. All right, I got obsessed with this. And I'm not really into superhero things, really at all. But um, this one was really fucking funny. Maybe the other superhero things are funny and I just never watched them. But um, it's got uh, Daniel Brooks, who played Tasty on Orange and the New Black, and John Cena, who has hot-ass nude scenes, um, going on in it um and it's about this really bad superhero guy and then like his superhero crew and he has a pet eagle named eagly who likes to give hugs to people and oh yeah and it really was funny i laughed a lot during it um so yeah definitely t- uh, check it out and tasty was obviously great in it uh I didn't think I would make it past the first episode. And in the beginning, uh, the intro is this hilarious dance montage that usually I skip intros, but I kept watching every time because it's so funny. And then the last thing that I've been watching was Dollface on Hulu. And that is like Kat Dennings gets dumped from her longtime boyfriend and realizes she's totally lost touch with her, all the women in her life. And um, she, like, hallucinates this cat that teaches her lessons of the importance of female friendship and stuff. And Shay Michelle is one of her friends. Yeah. I mean, I find Kat Dennings' voice to be a little irritating. Not her fault. Um, So I didn't know if I could hang in there all the way. But it was really cute. It was like a a, just like a feel-good, you know, you need your friends and your homies are more important than some dick type of situation. So I liked it. Right on. Yeah. And what have you been watching? Thank you so much for asking. I got into the Wayback Machine recently, and um, I started watching this show that I completely did not even know existed when it first came out, um, which was in, I want to say, 2004. It's this show called Wonderfalls. Have you heard of it? No. I had never heard of it until recently, but um, it's this dramedy that was created by a dude named Brian Fuller, who I know about because I'm a Trekkie. (laughs) This dude um, has a writer and executive producer on Star Trek Voyager, Star Trek Deep Space Nine. He's the co-creator of Star Trek Discovery, which is on now and which I'm watching. And um, he created this show back in the day. Um, called Wonderfalls. That's a, it centers on this young woman who's like sort of a post-collegiate Daria type, um, played by Caroline De, uh, Devarnis. And she plays this recent Brown graduate who has a degree in philosophy. And she just like goes back to her hometown, which is Niagara Falls, like Niagara, and works at a Niagara Falls gift shop. And um, she starts hallucinating that various animal figurines in the gift shop are speaking to her. There's a lot of hallucinations um, going on in this. (laughs) I know it's the zeitgeist, right? And like these different animals sort of give her very vague directives about things that end up being like people that she needs to help. Hmm. And so it's, it's this (laughs) weird hallucinatory snarky Daria type show. 
uh, and I like it. And I've I've been watching every episode on on uh, YouTube because they're floating around there, and there really aren't that many episodes. So I've been taking it slow. I think I'm like six or seven episodes in now to Wonder Falls, and I like it. It's good. It so- was on um, TV Guide once had a list of the 60 shows that were canceled too soon. Oh, and uh, a lot this of one those. was included on that list. Um, I read this amazing graphic novel called Bezimena by a Serbian Canadian cartoonist named Nina Bunjevac. Um, it is, it blew my mind. Like it was one of these books where like I read the whole thing and then I just started at the very beginning again. Um, this book, it came out in 2018 and it got the Best Book Jury Prize at the Luca Comic and Game Awards. And um, it won the Artemisia Prize for Best Drawing in France. Um, and it's very gorgeous, very challenging, super disturbing. It's kind of a weird fairy tale from the perspective of a sexual predator. Oh. So content warning there. But um, the there's a, a very compelling afterword by Nina Bunjavac. Um, about her own experiences with sexual assault. Like myself as a survivor of sexual assault, I was very intrigued by it and disturbed and interested. And, um, you know, obviously content around that isn't for everyone. But if it is something that uh, you're interested in exploring psychologically and in terms of art, it's it's way up there in terms of like some of the best art I've ever seen created on the subject. Oh, that sounds cool. Yeah. It's pretty astonishing. Uh, so it's called Bezimena. It's a graphic novel. And then I saw the movie that is up for all of the Academy Awards this year, power of the dog, um, which is Jane Campion's new film. It's up for 12 Oscars. Whoa. And yeah, it's this weird Western um, that was written and directed by Jane Campion. It's based on a, a 1967 novel by Thomas Savage about sort of a, a an evil closeted cowboy <laughs> and that the uh, just sort of like his reign of terror over his family. And it's uh, it was it was sort of, it's it's strange. It's one of those movies that you would hate because it's a slow burn. Mm-hmm. Um, so like I I actually dozed off a couple of times, but by the end I was like, oh shit, and I was very riveted by the end. I don't know if you know the the famous actor Sam Elliott who plays cowboys in absolutely everything. Yeah. Um, this mo- this movie just like was the talk of the town recently because he went on Mark Maron's WTF podcast and was like, as an actor who's in all the westerns, he was completely horrified by power of the dog. He called it a piece of shit. He didn't understand why they had to have so many quote unquote illusions of homosexuality in a Western because that doesn't belong in Westerns or something. It was, it was ignorant and it was stupid. Oh my God. I guess he wasn't Um, a Brokeback Mountain fan. Yeah. Everybody on Twitter was like, don't tell him about Brokeback Mountain. He was so horrified by this idea of making a gay Western. But, like, anyway, uh, yes, uh, Sam Elliott, the gays are everywhere, including the American West. Come to terms. Get a grip. And, of course, the last thing that I've been watching is the Majestic Pop-Tarts Patreon page. We, Callie and I, Really need your help, listeners, to help keep Bust alive. And hopefully you'll be excited by the goodies that we've hooked up for you, our beloved listeners, at patreon.com slash Podcast. Callie and I, with help from Team Bust, have been typing up show notes exclusively for Patreon donors that include links to what every single person has been watching for all 124 episodes. We've got totally ad-free episodes available there's exclusive content on there, which includes a uh, uh, amazing interview with Big Frida, Queen Diva, Diva, and more. Please check it out uh, at Patreon.com/PopTartsPodcast. For this episode, I would like to give a very special shout out to my very dear friend Will Harrell. He is 
the number one biggest Debbie Gibson fan in the entire world. And he very generously helped me prepare for this interview. Will, you're the best. Mwah, mwah, mwah. I love that. And, of course, I would like to thank our luscious producer and sound engineer, Logan Del Fuego. Muy caliente, Logan. And our girl gang at Bust Magazine. You can find me on Twitter at Emily Rems and on Instagram at Rems Emily, but you cannot find Callie on social media, so don't try, right? No, 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 no. You can, however, email both of us. I'm at Emily Rems at bust.com. Callie W at bust.com. And you can learn more about this show at bust.com slash Pop-Tarts. And finally, Please rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us get the word out, and we super duper appreciate it. Until next time. Snug it up, snug it up. 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 And it's time to inhale the devil's lettuce. So smoke it up. That's dramatic coughing. Oh, shit. Well, that's <laughs> <laughs>